Section 91 of Reviews by Oscar Wilde This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gesine Reviews by Oscar Wilde Edited by Robert Ross Section 91 Some Literary Notes 6 Woman's World, June 1889 A writer in the Quarterly Review for January 1874 says, No literary event since the war has excited anything like such a sensation in Paris as the publication of the Lettres à une Inconnue. Even politics became a secondary consideration for the hour, and academicians, or deputies of opposite parties, might be seen eagerly accosting each other in the chamber or the street to inquire who this fascinating and perplexing unknown could be. The statement in the Revue des Deux Mondes that she was an Englishwoman moving in brilliant society was not supported by evidence, and Monsieur Blanchard, the painter, from whom the publisher received the manuscripts, died most provokingly at the very commencement of the inquiry, and made no sign. Some intimate friends of Mirimet, rendered incredulous by wounded self-love at not having been admitted to his confidence, insisted that there was no secret to tell, their hypothesis being that the inconnu was a myth, and the letters a romance, with which some petty details of actual life had been interwoven to keep up the mystification. Unquote. But an artist like Mirimet would not have left his work in so unformed a state, so defaced by repetitions, or with such a want of proportion between the parts. The inconnu was undoubtedly a real person, and her letters in answer to those of Mérimée have just been published by Mrs. Macmillan under the title of An Author's Love. Her letters? Well, they are such letters as she might have written. By the tideless sea at Cannes on a summer day, says the anonymous author, I had fallen asleep, and the plashing of the waves upon the shore had doubtless made me dream. When I awoke the yellow paper-covered volumes of Prosper Mérimée's Lettres à un inconnu lay beside me. I had been reading the book before I fell asleep, but the answers, had they ever been written, or had I only dreamed? The invention of the love-letters of a curious and unknown personality, the heroine of one of the great literary flirtations of our age, was a clever idea, and certainly the author has carried out his scheme with wonderful success, with such success indeed that it is said that one of our statesmen, whose name occurs more than once in the volume, was for a moment completely taken in by what is really a jeu d'esprit. The first serious joke perpetrated by Mrs. Macmillan in their publishing capacity. Perhaps it is too much to call it a joke. It is a fine, delicate piece of fiction, an imaginative attempt to complete a real romance. As we had the letters of the academic Romeo, it was obviously right that we should pretend we had the answers of a clever and somewhat mondaine Juliet. Or is it Juliet herself, in her little Paris boudoir, looking over these two volumes with a sad, cynical smile? Well, to be put into fiction is always a tribute to one's reality.
as for extracts from these fascinating forgeries, the letters should be read in conjunction with those of Mérimée himself. It is difficult to judge of them by samples. We find the inconnu first in London, probably in 1840. Quote, Little, she writes, can you imagine the storm of indignation you aroused in me by your remark that your feelings for me were those suitable for a fourteen-year-old niece? Merci. Anything less like a respectable uncle than yourself I cannot well imagine. The role would never suit you, believe me, so do not try it. Now, in return for your story of the phlegmatic musical animal who called forth such stormy devotion in a female breast, and who, himself cold and indifferent, was loved to the extent of a watery grave being sought by his inamorata as solace for his indifference. Let me ask the question why the women who torment men with their uncertain tempers, drive them wild with jealousy, laugh contemptuously at their humble entreaties, and fling their money to the winds, have twice the hold upon their affections that the patient, long-suffering, domestic, frugal Griseldas have, whose existences are one long penance of unsuccessful efforts to please. Answer this comprehensively, and you will have solved a riddle which has puzzled women since Eve asked questions in paradise. Unquote. Later on she writes, quote, Why should all natures be alike? It would make the old saws useless if they were, and deprive us of one of the truest of them all. Variety is the spice of life. How terribly monotonous it would be if all the flowers were roses, every woman a queen, and each man a philosopher. My private opinion is that it takes at least six men such as one meets every day to make one really valuable one. I like so many men for one particular quality which they possess, and so few men for all. Comprenez-vous? Unquote. In another place, quote, Is it not a trifle dangerous, this experiment we are trying of a friendship in pen and ink and paper? A letter. What thing on earth more dangerous to confide in? Written at blood heat, it may reach its destination when the recipient's mental thermometer counts zero, and the burning words and thrilling sentences may turn to ice and be congealed as they are read. A letter, the most uncertain thing in a world of uncertainties, the best or the worst thing devised by mortals. Unquote. Again, quote, Surely it was for you, mon cher, that the description given of a friend of mine was originally intended. He is a trifle cynical, this friend, and decidedly pessimistic, and of him it was reported that he never believed in anything until he saw it and then he was convinced that it was an optical illusion. The accuracy of the description struck me. Unquote. They seemed to have loved each other best when they were parted. Quote, I think I cannot bear it much longer, this incessant quarrelling when we meet, and your unkindness during the short time that you are with me. Why not let it all end? It would be better for both of us. I do not love you less when I write these words. If you could know the sadness which they echo in my heart, you would believe this. No, I think I love you more, but I cannot understand you. As you have often said, 
our natures must be very different, entirely different. If so, what is this curious bond between them? To me you seem possessed with some strange restlessness and morbid melancholy, which utterly spoils your life, and in return you never see me without overwhelming me with reproaches, if not for one thing, for another. I tell you I cannot, will not, bear it longer. If you love me, then in God's name cease tormenting me as well as yourself with these wretched doubts and questionings and complaints. I have been ill, seriously ill, and there was nothing to account for my illness save the misery of this apparently hopeless state of things existing between us. You have made me weep bitter tears of alternate self-reproach and indignation, and finally of complete miserable bewilderment as to this unhappy condition of affairs. Believe me, tears like these are not good to mingle with love. They are too bitter, too scorching. They blister love's wings and fall too heavily on love's heart. I feel worn out with a dreary sort of hopelessness. If you know a cure for pain like this, send it to me quickly. Unquote. Yet, in the very next letter, she says to him, quote, Although I said goodbye to you less than an hour ago, I cannot refrain from writing to tell you that a happy calm which seems to penetrate my whole being seems also to have wiped out all remembrance of the misery and unhappiness which has overwhelmed me lately. Why can it not always be so? Or would life perhaps be then too blessed, too wholly happy for it to be life? I know that you are free tonight. Will you not write to me? that the first words my eyes fall upon tomorrow shall prove that today has not been a dream? Yes, write to me. Unquote. The letter that immediately follows is one of six words only. Quote, Let me dream. Let me dream. Unquote. In the following, there are interesting touches of actuality. Quote, did you ever try a cup of tea, the national beverage, by the way, at an English railway station? If you have not, I would advise you, as a friend, to continue to abstain. The names of the American drinks are rather against them. The straws are, I think, about the best part of them. You do not tell me what you think of Mr. Disraeli. I once met him at a ball at the Duke of Sutherland's in the long picture gallery of Stafford House. I was walking with Lord Shrewsbury, and without a word of warning he stopped and introduced him, mentioning with reckless mendacity that I had read every book he had written and admired them all. Then he coolly walked off and left me standing face to face with the great statesman. He talked to me for some time, and I studied him carefully. I should say he was a man with one steady aim, endless patience, untiring perseverance iron concentration, marking out one straight line before him so unbending that despite themselves men stand aside as it is drawn straightly and readily on. A man who believes that determination brings strength, strength brings endurance, and endurance brings success. He knew how often in his novels he speaks of the influence of women, socially, morally, and politically, Yet his manner was the least interested or deferential in talking that I have ever met with in a man of his class. 
He certainly thought this particular woman of singularly small account, or else the brusque and tactless allusion to his books may perhaps have annoyed him, as it did me. But whatever the cause, when he promptly left me at the first approach of a mutual acquaintance, I felt distinctly snubbed. Of the two men, Mr. Gladstone was infinitely more agreeable in his manner. He left one with a pleasant feeling of measuring a little higher in cubic inches than one did before, than which I know no more delightful sensation. À Paris, bientôt. Unquote. Elsewhere we find cleverly written descriptions of life in Italy, in Algeria, in Hombourg, at French boarding-houses, stories about Napoleon III, Guizot, Prince Gorchakov, Montalembert, and others, political speculations, literary criticisms, and witty social scandal, and everywhere a keen sense of humour, a wonderful power of observation. As reconstructed in these letters, the inconnu seems to have not been unlike Mérimée himself. She had the same restless, unyielding, independent character. Each desired to analyse the other. Each, being a critic, was better fitted for friendship than for love. We are so different, said Mérimée once to her, that we can hardly understand each other. But it was because they were so alike that each remained a mystery to the other. Yet they ultimately attained to a high altitude of royal and faithful friendship. And from a purely literary point of view, these fictitious letters give the finishing touch to the strange romance that so stirred Paris fifteen years ago. Perhaps the real letters will be published some day. When they are, how interesting to compare them! The Bird Bride by Graham R. Thompson is a collection of romantic ballads, delicate sonnets, and metrical studies in foreign fanciful forms. The poem that gives its title to the book is The Lament of an Eskimo Hunter over the loss of his wife and children. Years agone, on the flat white strand, I won my sweet sea girl. Wrapped in my coat of the snow-white fur, I watched the wild birds settle and stir, the grey gulls gather and whirl. One, the greatest of all the flock, perched on an ice-flow bare, called and cried as her heart went broke, and straight they were changed, that fleet bird-folk, to women young and fair. Swift I sprang from my hiding-place, and held the fairest fast. I held her fast, the sweet, strange thing. Her comrades scurled, but they all took wing, and smote me as they passed. I bore her safe to my warm snow-house. Full sweetly there she smiled, and yet, whenever the shrill winds blew, she would beat her long white arms anew, and her eyes glanced quick and wild. But I took her to wife, and clothed her warm, with skins of the gleaming seal. Her wandering glances sank to rest, when she held a babe to her fair warm breast, and she loved me, dear and leal. Together we tracked the fox and the seal, and at her behest I swore, that bird and beast my bow might slay, for meat and for raiment, day by day, but never a grey gull more. 
famine comes upon the land, and the hunter, forgetting his oath, slays four seagulls for food. The birdwife shrilled out in a woeful cry, and taking the plumage of the dead birds, she makes wings for her children and for herself, and flies away with them. Babes of mine, of the wild wind's kin, feather ye quick, nor stay. Oh, oh, ho, but the wild winds blow, babes of mine, it is time to go, up, dear hearts, and away. And lo, the grey plumes covered them all, shoulder and breast and brow. I felt the wings of their whirling flight. Was it sea or sky? Was it day or night? It is always night-time now. Dear, will you never relent, come back? I loved you long and true. O winged white wife, and our children three, Of the wild wind's kin, though you surely be, Are ye not of my kin too? I, ye once were mine, and, till I forget, Ye are mine forever and aye, Mine wherever your wild wings go, While shrill winds whistle across the snow. And the skies are blear and grey. Some powerful and strong ballads follow, many of which, such as The Cruel Priest, Date Folks Ferry, and Märchen, are in that curious combination of Scotch and border dialect so much affected now by our modern poets. Certainly, dialect is dramatic. It is a vivid method of recreating a past that never existed. It is something between a return to nature and a return to the glossary. It is so artificial that it is really naive. From the point of view of mere music, much may be said for it. Wonderful diminutives lend new notes of tenderness to the song. There are possibilities of fresh rhymes, and in search for a fresh rhyme, poets may be excused if they wander from the broad high road of classical utterance into devious byways and less trodden paths. Sometimes one is tempted to look on dialect as expressing simply the pathos of provincialisms, but there is more in it than mere mispronunciations. With the revival of an antique form often comes the revival of an antique spirit. Through limitations that are sometimes uncouth and always narrow comes tragedy herself, and though she may stammer in her utterance and deck herself in cast-off weeds and trammelling raiment, still we must hold ourselves in readiness to accept her. So rare are her visits to us now, so rare her presence in an age that demands a happy ending from every play, and that sees in the theatre merely a source of amusement. The form, too, of the ballad, how perfect is it in its dramatic unity! It is so perfect that we must forgive it its dialect if it happens to speak in that strange tongue. Then by came the bride's company with torches burning bright. Tack up, tack up, your bonny bride, at the murk midnight. Oh, wan, wan was the bridegroom's face, and wan, wan was the bride, but clay cold was the young mess priest that stood them to her beside. Says, Rax me out your hand, sir knight, and wed her with his ring. And the dead bride's hand was as cod as any earthly thing. 
The priest he touched that lady's hand, and never a word he said. The priest he touched that lady's hand, and his ain was wet and red. The priest he lifted his ain right hand, and the red blood dripped and fell. Says, I loved ye lady, and ye loved me. Say, I took your life myself. Oh, red, red was the dawn a day, and tall was the gallows tree. The Southland lord to his ain has fled, and the mess-priests hang it high. Of the sonnets, this to Herodotus is worth quoting. Far-travelled coaster of the Midland seas, what marvels did those curious eyes behold? Winged snakes and carven labyrinths of old, the emerald column raised to Heracles, King Perseus' shrine upon the Chemian lees, four-footed fishes decked with gems and gold, and thou didst leave some secret yet untold, and veiled the dread of Syrian mysteries. And now the golden asphodels among thy footsteps fair, and to the lordly dead thou tellest all the stories left unsaid, of secret rites and runes forgotten long, of that dark folk who ate the lotus bread and sang the melancholy Linus song. Mrs. Thompson has certainly a very refined sense of form. Her verse, especially in the series entitled New Words to Old Tunes, has grace and distinction. Some of the shorter poems are, to use a phrase made classical by Mr. Pater, little carved ivories of speech. She is one of our most artistic workers in poetry, and treats language as a fine material. 1. An Author's Love, being the unpublished letters of Prosper Mirimé's Inconnu, Macmillan and Co. 2. The Bird Bride, a volume of ballads and sonnets, by Graham R. Thompson, Longman's Green and Co. End of section 91 Recorded by Gesine in September 2007